right, friends, the show is Stand to Reason, and uh, the host is Greg Kokel, and thank you for being part of our show. I'm on my own today, though. Uh, oh, no, this is a live show. Oh, okay, so I did. <laughs> oh, I'm just a little confused. I did a, an open mic uh, program a couple of hours ago, so nobody had the opportunity to call in. Uh, you do so now, and uh, we have a call from Toronto coming in. Uh, hmm. Okay. Is he, is he on board? Ready to go? Is Bob ready to go, Amy? Bob is ready to go, right? Okay. Uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. But um, in fact, I think I'm going to get to it right now. I I, I uh, was going to go to some open mic calls, but uh, now I've got a regular call on board. So let's just jump right in and uh, talk to Bob from Toronto. Hello, Bob. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I sure can. Great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for the call today. Thank you for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Should I just get into my question, or? It yeah, it's time for the <laughs> whatever you want. It's your show. Sure. I, I, on your <laughs> end, at least. It's actually, my show. Okay. But you, you're That's the guest right. at the moment. What's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I just had a question about um, uh, Protestantism and uh, or whatever we want to call it, the reform side or Protestantism, and um, essentially, there's an issue that. Um, I'm I'm talking to my pastor about it as well. I go to a Baptist church, and okay. I consider myself um, non-denominational. I don't have any kind of affinity for any branch like Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, or right. Protestant necessarily. But so the issue is with the foundational kind of uh, internal contradiction of sola scriptura. So if um, it's the Bible alone, for example, so just to take the standard argument, uh, the question is then okay. In the Bible, there's that classic issue of the, the, the table of contents issue, where there's no, there's no part of the Bible that says which book should be part of it. Um, there's also nowhere in the Bible that says to read the Bible. There's certainly passages that say the benefits and the instruction, and um, like Second uh, Timothy 3.16, like for reproof, sure. correction, and so forth. Correct. But nothing that literally says in the way that we have, for example, love your neighbor command, there's nothing that says read the Bible, right? So... The issue with Sola Scriptura is that it's Protestant, like if I'm a Baptist, for example, and I say, okay, I don't agree with, um, I don't uh, hold to the Roman Catholic Church um, in terms of its authority, I don't agree with, we can run down the list, Mariology, Papacy, all the sacraments, blah, 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 and I could say, okay, I think they're all wrong on that stuff. However, then I'm also simultaneously saying that the Bible, which was assembled by Roman Catholics, is valid. And so I'm kind of saying that they've got pretty much everything wrong that they would have derived from Scripture and tradition, but Scripture is also correct. So there's a couple of common objections I've come across just talking to pastors and, okay. and the theologians, but okay. that's kind of the general idea. Okay, let's let's just work with that a little bit, because there's a number sure. of statements you said, some are amb- ambiguous to me and I need clarification on, and some uh, one especially is just plain old false. You just okay. said a moment ago that the Bible was assembled by Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that idea? Well, that's from the history that uh, you could read. With the, but the, there weren't even any Roman Catholics around until about the fifth or sixth century. Roman Catholics, as such, that is the ascendancy of Rome declaring what is Orthodox and what isn't. 
So right. early on, there weren't there was no Roman Catholicism. There were a lot of bishops bishops in a lot of areas, and even as late as four hundred years into the uh, into the, the the common era, you have three twenty five. You have the Council of uh, Nicaea. And you have two representatives from every region, and the Roman uh, representation was two, just like everybody else. There's about 400 representatives there. There are 300-something representatives, but Rome only had two. Rome wasn't calling the shots, even at the Council of Nicaea. So I'm, I'm not sure by what, by what a th- um, line of reasoning somebody could say that the canon, which was clearly— in place by Nicaea, that the canon was assembled by Roman Catholics, and the presumption there is it's assembled by the Roman Catholic authority to decide which book is in and which book is out. That's a separate claim itself. So this, I mean, I I mean, I, I, I guess I'm saying I reject the notion that Roman Catholics assembled it since there were no Roman Catholics around working based on authority to assemble it. This isn't how the canon came to be. Um, right. So if, can I respond to that? Or Say again? Can I respond to that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so when I say Roman Catholics, I'm using the contemporary terminology. So we separate Roman Catholic because that's the understanding we have it is today, because that church is headed in Rome. But naturally then it wasn't referred to as Roman Catholic, and all the diaspora that was spread out everywhere, whether it was from Asia Minor or the Eastern aspects, that's not necessarily Roman Catholic for sure, because that was a time when there was a culmination of Christianity heading into the empire, like you say from Nicaea. So I'm referring to... Obviously, we know it's Athanasius who okay. finally put in the, right. the okay. proper listing. Right? Okay, let's clarify then. When when you say Catholic, Roman Catholic, in the way you were referring to, you didn't mean Roman. You just meant the Catholic Church, that is the Church Universal, making their contribution all around and coming to an understanding about which f- books were actually authoritative to speak for God. Okay, that's the corpus of Scripture. But of course, that isn't the Roman Catholic Church, that's the Catholic Church. So then one segment of that community starts to make dictates about things. That doesn't mean that their dictates are therefore accurate, because they assembled the, the, uh, the canon. They didn't assemble the canon. So if, 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 the, if your point is not Roman Catholic, but Catholic small c universal church, Mm-hmm. Then, then the concern you raise disappears. No, because it was effectively, it was the Church then that was, like you say, Catholic, which is obviously just universal. It's not necessarily that it's exclusively Roman, but I'm not even harping on the point that it's Roman. It's the fact that it was the Catholic Church at that time, which blossomed into the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries, naturally, as the Roman Empire split, and so on and so forth. But it was the traditions that they held on to, and that they passed down, like, for example... Um, christening, infant baptism, all the sacraments, Mariology, all of that. Yeah, but so none of that is the in the Bible. Is, none of that is in the Bible. So clearly these right, are eps, that, extra... Go ahead. I, yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of confused, because on the one hand, you're saying this group that assembled the Bible also was the one who passed on all of these traditions that are not biblical. Okay, but right. that... Well, what I'm saying is, what, what's the argument that can be used to... Um, cohere sola scriptura if the ones who assemble the Bible also believe in all of these. For example, I can take the point that they could be extra 
biblical dogma. That's fine. So if those are the case, though, how could that be reconciled for a Protestant to say, okay, the scripture was correctly assembled, and it was, however somebody wants to explain it, whether it's God led these men, inspired them, whatever way one wants to think of it. However, they were wrong on all of this other stuff. Okay, but the, so how is that reconcilable? Okay, the thing is, is you're not. Uh, there's a couple of mistakes that are going on here, and I'll do my best to try to clarify them. But one of them, and it's it's like keeps asserting itself in this conversation. If the Church Universal recognizes the corpus of of, of Scripture that we call the canon. That doesn't mean that individuals or individual groups in that larger church universal can't make mistakes about what the canon says or add ideas that are not in the canon and claim authority for those ideas. This is what Rome has done. Rome claims to be the organization that Jesus established, and therefore the organization that can declare what is true or false with regards to doctrine, okay? But that isn't the case with the rest of—you have other individual groups that make the same claim for themselves. But I don't think that from the Scriptures you can get the idea that Jesus came to start an organization. And so, therefore, any particular parochial group to claim to be—that claims to be the organization that Jesus came to start is missing it entirely if Jesus didn't come to start an organization. So the understanding that the corpus of Scripture is recognized by Christians in general does not compete or conflict with the notion that some individual Christians over time make authority claims for themselves that are not scriptural. That's the first mistake. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I... I, I Hopefully that makes sense to you, what I just offered. Um, Another aspect, though, that's really important is, and and this uh, is how the canon was assembled. So I'm going to give you a, a, um, I'm going to give you a a kind of a a characterization of, generally speaking, there's some little exceptions to this, but it was something that happened over a period of time. And the word canon means rule or authority. So the question is, what writings have been passed down to the Church in general that have internal authority based on, well, uh, internal authority, i.e., were given by God as Scripture? How do we know that? We know that based on the authorship, principally. So when Jesus trained disciples to take his truth out, they were trained by Jesus. When these disciples spoke for the church, the church recognized the authority of these individual disciples. When they spoke for the church in writing and sent things to these to the individual churches, they recognized that those writings had the authority of God. And so when you have writings that are from the apostles, this is canon rule not because the people who received the writings declared them to be such, because they didn't get authority through the declaration of those who received it. Rather, those who received it understood the authority because they were coming from apostles. For example, let's just say, Bob, you worked for me, 
okay? And mm-hmm. uh, and I sent you a letter giving you instructions on, we're in, uh, say, the trades and construction, and you're supposed to build this house in this particular way for this particular client, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that you recognize that the letter comes from me, the authority, and therefore giving you the giving me the right to tell you what to do doesn't mean that you are now the authority because you recognize the letter came from me in the same way the church recognized the authority of the letters of the books of the bible written by those who had either apostolic authority themselves or those connected closely to apostles like like Luke or possibly Mark with Peter Luke with Paul Mark with Peter in general, that was the way they recognized the books. These books that had come from authoritative individuals who were uh, represented the authority to rule the church, or the canon authority, or simply the canon. And so instead of individuals who had authority picking and choosing what they had authority to choose, they were simply identifying those things that came from the people who had the authority in themselves to write for God. That's another point of confusion that a lot of people get hooked up on. Well, the Catholic Church had the authority to choose these books, so how could the so the Catholic Church has the Roman Catholic Church in this case has the authority to tell us what it means. That isn't how it happened. The authority was in the books themselves. Just like the Jews recognized the authority of the prophets in the Tanakh and in the and Moses' authority, their recognition of the authority of Moses and the prophets didn't create the authority. They just recognized the authority there, and that's what helped give us the entire Old Testament canon. The same thing happened like that in the New Testament. Most of the time, if there was no question that the text was written by someone with apostolic authority or a companion of a person with apostolic authority there wasn't the 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 text wasn't contested um it's the ones that weren't entirely clear about their authority that there was some discussion about in most cases does that make sense to you yeah um there's there's a, a few things that are self-refuting in what you stated they're um, self-refuting okay yeah so like for example um one of the claims that uh, there's apostolic authority is that's one of the the foundations even for Eastern Orthodox as well for the Church Father tradition. So that's there, but that if that's abandoned, then basically that invalidates um, the authority or the sourcing of Scripture because there's again nothing in anything Paul or Luke or Mark or Matthew or Peter wrote that states that their words or their scriptures should be included. In teaching, in terms of a finalized, well, well that, that's actually it's not... something that's tradition, right? So, like in Second Thessalonians, it says, "Pass on what we have taught you, brothers, by word or epistle." So there's a uh, okay. very strong. Well, th- this is not entirely true. Um, that the apostles did write, in some cases, explicitly that they were speaking authoritatively for God in that circumstance. All right, but uh, I'm not sure what the self-refuting part is. What, what all I'm saying here is that those who are trained by Jesus had the authority to speak for Jesus 
um, to the church. That's all I'm saying. And that whether they spoke verbally, whether they wrote it down for posterity, it's still their content, and the people receiving it understood that these letters were written by somebody with authority, and therefore they are the rule for the church, the rule meaning the canon. That's all I'm saying. I'm not sure what's self-refuting about that. Well, because if, if that is the case, which of course, yeah, they had the authority handed down the, to them by Jesus, but the point is, if that was the case, it wouldn't have taken several centuries for the canon to be assembled. It would have been clear right from the beginning. Now, we can attribute that to a couple causes. Potentially, there's all of the disparate churches and groups of people who are suffering persecutions for the first few centuries, all of that, understandable, very tumultuous time. So they're still formulating all of their central ideas. It's still being passed around. It's very slow. There's no phones those days. So, of course, we can understand. Okay. The other alternative is that there's simply no possible way until there's actual men, like, for example, Athanasius and the others who later on after Nicaea and Constantinople would have assembled the canon. They would have... No, I think that's a good point. Yeah, part of the problem was, here are these things that were accepted generally by the people because the apostles had offered them, and they were being distributed as, in some cases, the apostles said to do, okay? And they had apostolic authority. There wasn't a lot of issue there until people like Marcion show up in what the early second century and say, here's a bunch of stuff I don't accept is from God that other people were doing, and the Old Testament I'm throwing out because he didn't like the Jewish stuff. Anything Jewish he wanted to throw out, okay? This is when the other church leaders decided, and and again, there's a process that's involved, this period of time, and we're not living in a digital age back then, but when the things that had been accepted as authoritatively, as authoritative, began to be challenged by heretics, that's when some of the church fathers had to get together and start saying, no, this guy's wrong, here's the stuff that's right. And we have church fathers that are discipled by disciples, and then like Ignatius and uh, Polycarp and uh, etc. You know, we have this succession of closely close relationships between with the apostles and their disciples and their subsequent disciples. We are able to see those writings and see what these guys were citing as what they understood to be the God-ordained scriptures. And so when Marcion, someone from the outside, comes out and starts nixing it, some of these things, then then they're in a position where they have to address these problems. And the irony is it was apologists facing these kinds of challenges um, of false teaching that established more formally good theology. Okay, and uh, the good theology became more formalized later on, and sometimes it took a hundred years to deal with the Arian problem. Marcion was one of the first. Then you got the Gnostic problem, and then you got the Arian problem. And so, what this requires then is for the Christians to get together and then, based on their understanding of the original sources, come to conclusions about what is orthodox. But they were forced to formalize that because of the false teaching that began to uh, to seep into the Church. And this is why you have a, a longer process. You, you don't have actually anybody sitting down to decide what these things are. You have lists that some people um, that some people have put together of the the books that were considered authoritative, but you don't have a council sign saying we have the authority to decide what's in the scriptures and what's out. It was a long process 
assessing these things based on the connection to apostolic authorship. That was the main issue. Right. So in there, as you're claiming, it's building the case for a line of succession and for the fact that there are men who have to figure out what goes in and what gets mixed, like you say. And that can only be predicated on those men deciding based on what they knew at the time and what they believed alongside, which would be all of the things that were happening from the very earliest Christians. There were very, uh, the presence of the infant baptisms was almost from the get-go. We know that from Justin Martyr's writing. We know that from Ignatius' testimony. So that was happening all throughout. Now, I understand the reasoning, the objection. Okay, they get some things wrong, they get some things right. But the whole problem here, really, is fundamentally saying that these men who got all of these core things wrong, supposedly, and I'm not defending any of that kind of stuff, like infant baptisms, just for argument's sake, but if they got all of those things wrong, then to also say that they got the scripture correct. Not that they wrote it or anything, but that the agreement, as you say, that they would have, through a long process, come together through councils and through approval to decide what's well, going not, on. Well, not through councils. That's count- where the challenge comes. Yes, but that isn't exactly how it happened. I mentioned there were no councils that got together and decided what books. But there was a process that they went through, and some things they actually debated about. But notice the debate was about the, about the core uh, well, actually, the core was pretty much accepted, but the debate was about some of the fringe books that they, I think they call them the anti-legomena, the ones that, the, uh, that, that, that there was some debate about. Okay, so I don't, I don't know exactly how to answer this, because what I'm acknowledging is there was a human process that was involved, which was also true with the Hebrew Scriptures, okay? But it doesn't follow, because there was a human process, and some people disagreed with some of the things, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't follow from that, that God can't establish an accepted corpus of Scripture that becomes the standard by which some of these other particular doctrines that are not reflected in any of the accepted Scriptures— I'm trying to remember how I started my sentence— that that, that, um, uh, uh, let me start over with this. Amy and I were talking about this earlier. We start with complicated ideas, and then we can't remember where we were going with their (laughs) sentence, all right? Sure. Okay. Um, just because human beings are involved with trying to acknowledge what is the corpus of Scripture that um, that is that is the Word of God, doesn't mean there can't be individuals that make errors about some of these other things that you don't find in the corpus of Scripture that all agree on. And this is part of the problem, where you go. Some of the difficulties that you see with a lot of denominations are just interpretations of existing scriptures. They just understand these different scriptures to mean something different. They are not based on new scriptures. Virtually all the denominations and everything are based on the existing corpus that they all agree on, but they read them differently and they think they mean different things. Okay, that's that's knowledge. Sometimes there's going to be problems with that kind of thing. But but the, the, the it becomes clear to me that once you have a corpus that seems obvious and the churches in general agree on it, agreement on it, that if you start, those same men start introducing new doctrines that were not part of the original corpus, that these are things that they're bringing in as their own traditions and don't have the authority that the Scriptures themselves have. I'm not sure any other right. way to say it, but um, I, don't, I, don't, 
I, I can see how that's a little messy from your perspective, and I agree with that. I don't know how any other way it's going to be, but I don't see how, because human beings agree, let's just go back to the illustration of the workers. So it's you get my letter as your boss, and here's the letter, and a whole bunch of let, there's a whole bunch of other workers, and we all agree this is for me, all right? But then other workers start chiming in with new things that they think you ought to do that aren't part of the letter that I sent to you. Okay, well, even though they recognize the letter I sent is for me, and that's the authority, doesn't mean that they then have the authority to add new things. They are just recognizing who the original authority is in my letter. When they want to add new things, then they're doing that on their own recognizance, so to speak, and it has to be weighed on its merits. Does this seem to comport with what the original says, or is it contrary to the original? And when you look at the development of certain church sects, S-E-C-T-S, there are lots of occasions where things do not seem to be comporting with what the original documents that all agree on actually said. And and, and it was the gathering together of the Christians using these original documents that they deemed authoritative. They're not the authority. The documents were the authority that allowed them to put together the, um, the, 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 the statements that came out of, uh, out of the various councils and the confessions that came out that they understood to reflect the original. The confession is not the authority. It is the originals that are the authority, and the confessions are only sound insofar as they reflect the original. Okay. Yeah, I think that the, the challenge is just still that sola scriptura, beyond any issues of doctrinal disagreements. That's not really, I don't have any um, challenge or issue with that, but naturally happens. Humans are going to be reading these things and so on and so forth. So that's all well and good. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let me, what is your understanding of the meaning of the phrase sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Meaning what? Scripture alone to what end? That is the authority of what guides the Christian life. Okay, the Scriptures are the only inerrant authority to guide Christian's Mm -hmm. life. So it is no other human being or group of human beings that speak with the authority of God for Christians about God's purposes. Right? Yes, that's that's what's called the Scripture. Uh, Yeah, and so... Well, I actually think that many people use the phrase, and they have a confused understanding of it, and this is why I was asking you specifically your your understanding, that only Scripture has the authority of speaking for God. That's not the Roman Catholic view, by the way. The Catholic Mm -hmm. view is the the Scriptures, and the the Pope, when he speaks from the chair, and also... um, uh, The Magisterium? Magisterium, correct, and then tradition, holy tradition. So they have four sources, all right, uh, of of authority, so to speak. And Mormons have theirs, the Bible plus the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. So these are different sources of authority. Protestants characteristically will say, no, the only thing that really is God's Word to the world is the Scripture. Now, there might be things other people say that are valuable and true as far as they go, but they aren't God's Word. I can tell you things that I think are true, and they may be true, but it's, I'm not speaking God's words. You know, they are, they aren't true because I say they are. <laughs> They're true because of the merits, you know. 
But in the case of Scripture, they are true in what they declare, and they are the authority, so that any other claims from any other group have to be weighed against Scripture. So if you have a declaration that infant baptism accomplishes a particular end, one needs to demonstrate from Scripture that that end is actually taught as such in Scripture. That's the application there. There may be okay to baptize infants, but if what you're declaring is a scriptural truth about that, you know, and you can't show it in Scripture, well, then it's not a scriptural um, injunction. Just Just because families got baptized doesn't mean there is a sacrament of infant baptism that is enjoined by Scripture, okay? Now, there's debates about that, but what I'm saying is that the the debate is based on the notion of what the Scripture actually teaches or enjoins, okay? We go back to the authority, not based on the authority of the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church or the Mormon Church or anything like that. It's not based on their authority, their say-so, it's based on what Scripture says and accurately understanding what Scripture says. That's the difference. That's the sola scriptura part. Let's go back to the text and see if we can justify or verify or validate this particular teaching from the text. Yeah, it's just that it'll continually face the challenge of internally reconciling itself, because what was chosen to wind up being scriptura is chosen by men. It's rec- it's okay. Okay. So just, that doesn't give them any authority. Don't I, I don't want that to be uh, mistaken because I you've said that a few times and I'm very clear that that's not really okay. an issue. Well, it's not an issue of men having the authority and then they're, what they say goes like, oh, I believe in infant baptism. Okay, forget what scripture says. Nothing like that. It's just that the fact that the ultimate assembly of what we know to be, because there's, you know, the Ethiopian Church has the Apocrypha, Catholic has the Apocrypha. So there's also the Deuterocanonical books. There's all sorts of stuff there, and as far as yeah, well, that was 15th century when they authorized the Apocrypha. So I mean, just to be fair with the historical details, that happened at the Council of Trent with the Roman Catholic Church. But here's the issue for me: is well, that's just not entirely accurate because they were authorized at Trent, but even going as far back as Chalcedon. That was being posed as a possible addition to the. Oh, is it possible? It just showed up. Yeah, but there was never. Yeah, but that shows that it was. But hold on a second. Now, there's no way that any of them would have introduced it in Chalcedon, being so close to Nicene Constantinople right. only 70 years before, if it wasn't floating around and highly prevalent in the Christian life. Right. Okay. So, so anyway, those uh, books were just pulled uh, out of nowhere. Well, I acknowledge that there was debate about that. There was also uh, debate about the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas, etc., etc. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. the these are Jewish books. I don't want to get sidetracked on that particular issue, but I do want to point out that these are Jewish books that the Jews never considered to be canonical, okay? Sure. This became debatable among Christians, but there was no unity with regards to those books like there were the rest of the canon, okay? Exactly. So, that's, yeah. that's kind of the point, well, is that there was unity among men who finally did agree that these books will okay. be what it is. So uh, that that's, to me is a, yeah, to my, to me that's a significant test. What I wanted to push back on a little bit, or just make a request on. You use sure. the word chosen. I didn't use the word chosen. I used the word recognize. And I think there's a distinction there, you know, because it's sure. not based on, as you pointed out and agreed to, it's not their authority, but it wasn't even just their choice that made the difference. It was their recognition of the church at large of a body of work that everybody agreed were scripture, even though there were some out here outliers that like the like the um, apocrypha, where some thought 
yes, and some thought no. I only mentioned Trent because that's when the Apocrypha was officially canonized by the mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church, and it seemed to be a counter-Reformation move, but you know, that's another issue, really. So, well, I, I can agree with that. Yeah. Okay, good. Hey, Bob, it was great talking to you. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. Thank the, you so much. And to, and to you as well. Uh, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back with more thoughts and more questions on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. So many of you know that Amy and Amy Hall and I do a, a another podcast. It's called uh, hashtag STR Ask, and the reason it's named that is because that's the way to submit your written questions to us that we can both uh, talk about. Now we have open mic calls eight five five two four three. Oh, I'm sorry. Make that uh, open mic calls eight five seven three four two. Five seven eight seven, and we'll probably get to some of those in a moment, so people can send open mic calls. But you can also write in hashtag STRask, a short thing like a Twitter or whatever, Twitter length or tweet length, and that will come to us. And that, on that show, we field those questions. Now, what happened in this case is we got the same question in both. What are you looking at me like you? No, but I, you already deleted it? Well, I can read it. Okay. Because I think it's cool. Well, we answered a question this morning on hashtag STRask, and then Amy deleted the open mic call because we'd already answered it. But I thought, well, maybe I can answer it for you guys um, because you're kind of a different audience. So sorry about that. Is it... Uh, this is the one about John and Revelation and Jesus, right, Amos? John and Revelation and Jesus is the one I'm talking about. Yeah, okay, so um, let me find it. Where is it? Okay, this is uh, actually Rick McCleary. 
So I, I just want to speak to this because I think it's kind of interesting. And as often is the case, especially it seems with hashtag STR Ask, we get very unique questions, things that we've never fielded before. And a lot of them are just curiosity questions. Gee, what's up with that kind of thing? And that's uh, the category this particular question falls in. So let me read the characterization that Amy gave me here in her summary. We can't listen to Mike, to the open mic uh, characterization of Rick, but uh, it's a minute long. So I'm just going to read two sentences, you know, but it sums up. Why isn't Jesus' encounter with his best friend, John? Remember John, the beloved disciple, right? In Revelation chapter 1, 13 through 18, more personal. Has Jesus severed his personal relationship with John now that he is Lord over all? Um, and I, I think it's a fair question. It's a, what's up with that kind of question? John was the beloved disciple. He was the one leaning against Jesus' shoulder uh, during the Last Supper, very close to him, able to have private conversation that others couldn't hear. Jesus mentions who is it that's going to betray him. He tells John, who asks him. I think that's where, or maybe one other that wasn't sitting next to him, but it's very intimate. John is the beloved disciple. And then when John gets the revelation, what, 60 years later, um, here's Jesus in all his glory, and dwelling in unapproachable light, with John falling down, totally overwhelmed by Jesus' presence, and not being addressed in a personal way. Hey, John, it's me. Remember me? Hey, how you been doing? You know, nothing like that. No small talk. So um, that's a fair question. Why is that? And I have a I have an idea about this, okay? And uh, and it's not that Jesus has somehow kind of graduated up. Lao, he's moved away. He's in this newer realm, far removed from the plebeian existence that he had with these these poor fishermen. You know, now he's exalted. He's made it. He's in the he's in the holy of holies in heaven and stepping down for a moment to give the revelation and going back to glory and doesn't have time for small talk with small people. Oh, I don't have any reason to believe anything like that is going on. In fact, uh, when you uh, when when Paul talks about heaven, he says, uh, you know, it's better to leave here and be with the Lord. Okay, and that's in Philippians, because he's in jail and he thinks he might lose his life, and he's saying, hey, it's better to be with the Lord. Um, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, with the Lord, in First, Second Corinthians, wherever. So there is no sense that, that when th- those of us are earthbound and, and view Jesus, that we are somehow disconnected from any kind of warmth or personal relationship with him. I think something else might be going on, and this is just conjecture, because I don't know the mind of Jesus on this, but I think that what happened in after Jesus' resurrection was a, kind of a muting of the glory of his resurrected body. Now, remember and I'm just going from memory now, I'm not actually reading from the text, and 
uh, this weekend, of course, Easter weekend, so some of you may read this passage, but uh, when when Jesus explodes out of that tomb, the rock is blown away, and there is, I think, a blinding light, and it strikes the soldiers, uh, what, like like they were dead. They They just go over. They get slain in the Spirit. Okay, they're out of it. Boom. And um, this is somewhat the kind of response that John seemed to have when he beheld Jesus. Okay, wow, OMG. I guess you could say, oh my God. Literally, in that case. But it might have been at the resurrection, there was this glorious manifestation of the resurrected body of Christ. And if it turns out that the Shroud of Turin is actually the Shroud of Christ, the image on that shroud seems to have been burned in there by a kind of a nuclear explosion, some unbelievably amazing, powerful radiation coming out of the corpse of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. All right? So maybe there you've got this magnificent display of glorious power emanating from this resurrected body that was more similar to what John experienced years later in the Revelation, in the vision, which, by the way, that is an important point. This is a vision. But nevertheless, it seems to be a vision of the risen Christ the way he really is. So when the women in, uh, encounter Jesus at the tomb, and the disciples in the inner room, and then on the beach, and then the different times they met with him, road to Emmaus, there in the end of Luke, you, you don't have that manifestation. He looks like a normal guy, kind of. Okay? Why the difference? And here's my suspicion, or here's my speculation, and that's all I can say it is, is that the apostles did not expect Jesus to die, and certainly did not expect him to rise from the dead. Once he was dead, they thought it was over. They weren't waiting for the resurrection. They were hiding knees knocking, lights out, doors locked, because they didn't want the same fate that Jesus got. There was no expectation of a resurrection. Now, if Jesus showed up in his full glory, like we have characterized in the book of Revelation, uh, and possibly what was evident there to those soldiers for a split second before they fell over, at Jesus' resurrection, if he de- if he showed up like that, would the disciples be inclined to think that Jesus rose from the dead? And I think the answer to that is no. And uh, N.T. Wright has pointed out, first of all, they had no expectation that there would be a resurrection, okay? So it isn't like this is wishful thinking that got fulfilled. They, it wasn't on their mind. And secondly, had Jesus, who had died, showed up in some form, they would not have thought it a resurrected Christ. They would, thought he, they would have thought he was a spirit, a ghost. And this would especially be the case if he showed up the way John saw him in the vision in the book of Revelation, it seems to me. Instead, Jesus shows up as himself. He looks like he looked before. They recognize him. 
Now, they didn't on the road to Emmaus, but I think the text says that Jesus—and I could look this up, but I think the text says that Jesus—Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke— uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, yeah, okay, I'm paging through it, that Jesus actually um, prevented them from recognizing him. Okay, something like that was going on, and it wasn't until they broke bread that they uh, recognized. Uh, they approached the village, are you going? Urged them to say, stay with us. They broke bread, began giving to them their eye, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Okay, so even to these guys who didn't recognize Jesus as Jesus, because their eyes were closed, they still recognized him as a human being, as a man. And I think what Jesus had to do is to show himself as a human, and when they recognized him as the very same Jesus in virtue of his very human appearance, they could then connect the Jesus they were witnessing with the one who had died, that this is the body that was raised from the dead, which makes sense because the tomb was empty. The body was revivified. And in fact, even looking at the body, they were tempted to say, it's a spirit, because Jesus said, I'm not a ghost. Look, look at my palms, look at my hands, look at my body, look, at, look I'm going to eat some fish, watch. I'm not a ghost. So my suspicion is Jesus showed up in a resurrected body, a revivified body, but not with the glory that is characteristic of a resurrected body. That glory was muted, so the disciples would be really clear that Jesus rose from the dead and didn't just appear to them as a spirit of a dead person in a glorified form. No, it was a bodily resurrection, and this is my suspicion. Once Jesus has ascended into heaven, there is nothing to restrict the glory of the resurrected body, no reason to do that. And so when Jesus appears in a vision to John in Revelation, he's appearing as himself in the fully glorified state, which is pretty awesome. So that's why I think you have a difference there between uh, the way Jesus was to his disciples in his earthly ministry and just after his resurrection, and the resurrected Christ in the book of Revelation that doesn't seem to be too chummy with John. I think that Jesus just had a, a, he had, <laughs> he had a different purpose at that time, and it wasn't chum around. Now, he did say to his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I go, I will come back and take you there. So there's that's personal. But what was going on in the vision in Revelation, there was a whole different agenda that Jesus had there, and he was fulfilling that. He wasn't hanging out again with John. So I'm not troubled by the difference, and I hope that helps you understand. Let's do another one. We just got, what, 10 minutes here to go. Um, Here's Richard, the faithiest atheist, uh, and he's talking about Dr. Heiser's Seven Rules for Reading the Bible. Do we have that handy? This is Richard, the faithiest atheist. Quick question for Greg. Dr. Michael Heiser has seven rules about reading the Bible. 
and one of them is that the Bible is a divine human book and to treat it as such. And my question is, the Mormons and Islamic scholars and Scientologists all have something similar about their sacred texts. And they say, your starting point is to know that it's divine. And then I'll consider treating it as such. I'm not just going to take your word for it. And I'm wondering if that's what we should say to Dr. Michael Heiser's advice too. Should that really be a cognitive starting point uh, when you're approaching text to, to make sure it's not of human origin? Thank you. Oh, that's a great question, Richard. And uh, it just points out that different people make, uh, or are there different religious books for which people make claims of divine origin regarding, okay, Book of Mormon, uh, Scientology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm not entirely sure of what Mike Heiser had in mind. Mike, by the way, went to be with the Lord just a few months ago and uh, died of cancer but wrote a very um, provocative book called, um, Amy can tell me, um, Mike Heiser's book, um, the, 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 thank you, The Unseen Realm. I would have gotten it sooner or later, but chances are later after the show was over. So uh, thank you, Amy, Unseen Realm. And um, I do not know who uh, Dr. Heiser was directing this exhortation at. And so I'm going to take the question from two different angles. Um, if he's speaking to Christians, he is the Christians already um, understand that the Scripture is a book by God in some profound sense to men, even though human beings were involved in writing it. It isn't merely a human book uh, written by men about God having all the same kind of liabilities any human book might have speaking about these kinds of things. Might be true, might be false, might be a mixture of truth and error, okay? If he's speaking to Christians, then he's he's basically making the point, if you want to understand God's world, you've got to take God at his word. Don't forget, the Bible is a divine book, okay? And we, Christians, have to read it as such. And therefore, when it makes statements about the council that he writes about, and that's somewhat controversial, but I've actually had a conversation with him about this about four years ago. We had dinner together, and, and I was with Frank Turek, and Mike was sitting to my right, and I just knew him as Mike. He introduced me as this Mike, or maybe he said Mike Heiser. I wasn't paying attention, but I did have the book, and we were two-thirds of the way through the meal, and Frank says, hey, Greg, uh, ask Mike about his book. And then I realized that he was the author of The Unseen Realm, and, and then we got in a great discussion about it. But basically, from what I learned from uh, Mike Heiser, is there really is nothing that controversial about his main tenets about this Council of the Gods. This is in the Scripture, and a lot of people have recognized it to be such. But since it's controversial, Mike is saying to Christians, let's just let the Word speak for itself. This is God telling us about how things are going on. Let's keep in mind that it's God speaking to us, and that interpret these things in light of that, not pick and choose what we like and we don't like. That could be one sense of what Mike Heiser had in mind when he uh, when he said that we ought to read the book as a divine book. Now, it, it could be that he was referring to outsiders as well. 
And uh, and then I think the exhortation is you have to take the book at face value. I do not think he meant just because it claims to be divine, you have to admit that it is divine, because then it would be on par with Book of Mormon or some of the other books that make a similar claim. But if the books are making a claim, then we have to take the claim seriously. If the Book of Mormon is, in fact, inspired by God, okay, that's the claim. I'm going to take it to assess it based on that claim. Then how do horses show up in the United States when there were no horses at the time when these things were happening? But the horses were brought over by the Spaniards. We know that as a fact of history. When the first settlers came to the American continent, there were no horses. Now, apparently, all the Book of Mormon events happened prior to the Americans coming and their horses and chariots. Oh, by the way, there were no wheels either. You see movies of went the, of sleds of sorts, you know, like they're stretchers being dragged on the back two feet, so to speak, of the stretchers, and horses, when they had them, were dragging these stretchers, or people dragged these stretchers or something, where the wheels? They had no wheels. But the Book of Mormon has chariots pulled by horses, so that is a problem for its claim of divine authorship. It's the same kind of approach that people will take to the Bible. It claims to be divine, then what about these problems? And if there are these serious problems that can be sustained, this casts a question on its claim to have divine authority. All right? So I think Mike Heiser may be referring to that. Let's just take it seriously as its claim. If you're not a believer, here are the faithiest atheist raising the concern. It's a great concern. Um, I do not think that the Book of Mormon survives scrutiny on this regard or I haven't looked at the Scientology material, but I'd be very curious to find out what ways they have worked to verify a claim to have some kind of divine spiritual authorship. But when it comes to the corpus of Scripture, yes, I think that can be answered, and we consistently give reasons why um, uh, it's smart to take the Bible at its claim that it is a divine book, because it has marks of the supernatural that cannot be explained simply by making reference to it as a human book. For example, fulfilled prophecy. Okay, now this all needs to be developed and established, and I've done this in other places, but if there are genuine prophecies in the Bible, that is, predictions of the future that are precise and detailed and accurate, that is, the fulfillment came after the prophecy was given. Well, this is a pretty strong suggestion that the authorship of the prophecy is supernatural as well, okay? And if there's a whole bunch of those things in different parts of the corpus of Scripture—remember, the Bible's not a book, but a bunch of books, it's a library of books— if there's a whole bunch of those things, well, this is kind of a mark in favor of the supernatural origin of the Bible, the source being God, not man, all right? Because human beings <clears throat> are not going to be able to predict the future with precision and accuracy. They might make a good guess about the future, but um, 
predicting the future with precision and detail and accuracy is is not something humans are capable of doing. But if the Bible does it, this is a mark of the supernatural. Now, I have identified actually six different characteristics like this. Prophecy, the unity of Scripture, I'd have to explain, you know, you have a program that's being fulfilled over time through the books. When the books are written by 40-plus different authors in different continents and different circumstances and over a, lo- a broad range of time and still tell a story that can be knit together into this fabulous um, account of God working in humanity to bring salvation to the world, okay? Uh, you also have uh, how it seems to address the big issues in a straightforward, honest fashion and and give answers that resonate with our deepest intuitions about reality. It's a, it, it, it's God intervening in history, allegedly, so you can test the history. Do these accounts, um, can they be substantiated with the canons, the standard mechanisms of historical research, and shown to be reliable as history? Okay, even Bart Ehrman wrote a book about Jesus, the man of history. He's not a, he's not a mither, uh, denying that a real Jesus exists. In fact, he fights against that notion. Bert Ehrman is a strong critic of Christianity and and of certain understandings of the Scripture. But in any event, they, I mean, you've got the historical element. You have the, the changed lives element, that people who obey Scripture and follow it, their lives are changed. You've got survival through time and persecution. You've got lots of different things to make a cumulative case that the Bible is what it claims to be. Anyway, that's the way I go about it. And there's my music. So that's it for today. Thank you for the uh, for the question, Mr. Faithiest Atheist, uh, Richard. And uh, thank the rest of you for your listening and your questions. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give him heaven. Bye bye now. <laughs> 